In this episode, we will be discussing all things childhood trauma, developing attachment styles, how to heal from childhood trauma, and we answer some of your questions. Hello everybody, welcome back to another episode. I am Kat, I am a registered psychologist. And I'm Amy, a registered psychotherapist. Amy, how are you my darling girl, surviving lockdown? Ah, I am, yeah, I'm surviving. I'm someone that finds it really hard to stay inside and do nothing. Um, So that's been a little bit of a challenge. Are you going stir crazy? A little bit. I went and bought a whole heap of games for me and Andy to play on Sunday. So we were running around the house with Nerf guns, shooting each other. We played the mouth guard challenge. So you stick like this mouth thing. Did that hurt? It looked painful. It did a little bit. It was a little bit painful. Yeah, it was digging into my gums every time I laughed. So it was like, ow, ow, (laughs) stop making me laugh, (laughs) ow. But everything's so funny. So you can't help but laugh and then... Yeah, so, you know, lockdown's been interesting. Mm. Self-isolation's been interesting. It's a strange time for what being about at the you? moment. How have you been going? I've been okay. I mean, the only thing that's changed for me is working from home and I guess not going to the gym and not kind of going out as much. So I guess everything's changed, but I'm okay. Mm. It's just, yeah, it's just the unknown. It's just very different. For example, it's your birthday. I'm like, we're supposed to go out, but we can't anymore. Mm. It's just really sad. Yeah, I think not being able to plan for anything's makes it difficult because we don't know what it's going to be like tomorrow so we can't do anything to prepare I think that's the most frustrating thing but I think I find comfort in that we're all in this together everyone's in the same boat everyone's really stressed everything's uncertain for everyone Mm. and we just do the best we can with what we have and see how we go so on that topic what is your pit and peak of the week Uh, I think my pit is also my peak. My pit is that, including you, I had um, very lovely friends deliver me beautiful birthday treats. Amy turned 27. I did. I did. Kat got me an entire New York cheesecake (laughs) in self-isolation. So I had an entire cheesecake to myself. I did share some of it, but mostly ate it to myself, which was calories. And Amy doesn't believe this, but calories actually don't count on your birthday. It's scientific science. It's not. It is. They science. definitely do. Science. Um, do you want to argue with science? I don't think it's science. <laughs> anyway, um, and then I had other friends buy me like these um, Nutella filled donuts. They look so, so good. I inhaled those as well. And then I come to Cats to, to record this podcast and. The birthday treats don't stop there. She's given me these filled cookies. How good are filled cookies? They are amazing. They're like mini cakes, eh? That's exactly what they are, the mini cakes. They are so good. I was just one night, I was just really hungry and I just really wanted to order some cookies. They are called thick cookies with a double C, the thick if anybody wants some cookies. They come really quickly. They are delicious. You're welcome. Mm. They were amazing. So I got super spoiled, um, but with gyms being closed and not having much gym equipment at home <laughs> i am definitely feeling the sloth mode that is self-isolation <laughs> and having an entire cheesecake and donuts and cookies but very very thankful very appreciated. it only happens once a year but i feel the same i feel like it's um you really miss the gym routine and your little outlet don't you definitely what would be your pit and peak <sighs> what is my pit and peak you know what my peak is that I just feel like I know isolation is really tough and it's been a real big change for people but I've really seen some beautiful effects of um, isolation so in terms of I guess community getting together like so for example 
all of my unit, we all have gotten together a few times just to talk about how everyone's going and support each other. And we usually all keep to ourselves. And it's been just a really nice, I guess, it sounds ironic because in self-isolation, you're supposed to isolate from everyone, but it's kind of, we've all been looking out for everyone, especially in the unit block. And it's been really nice to kind of have that bit of community and to reach out and have that support as well. So that's been really lovely. I've seen some really similar things happen with other units and other groups of friends. And it's just, everyone's a little bit extra vigilant at the moment so yeah it's just some nice after effects are coming out and someone left a note on our door the other day saying um if we needed anything from the shops that they're happy to run us and get something or if we need any medications oh, like yeah any yeah. scripts filled I was like that's so lovely so I feel like a lot of like really beautiful people are coming out of the woodwork and you know really nice community mm. action so that's my little peek um what would be what would be my pit um I don't think I have a pit Oh, well, that's quite good. Yeah, I mean, I'm honestly just killing it at the moment, if I'm honest. <laughs> <laughs> and so modest. <laughs> all right. So diving deep in today's episode, we are talking all things trauma. Kat, can you please shed some light on what you think trauma is all about for us? Okay, so I would just preface this and say this is Amy's area of genius, <laughs> but we do low work a little bit with trauma. So trauma is anything that happens in someone's life that causes either it could be a short-term stress or a long-term stress um, or lots of different cumulative events that lead to some long-term trauma. So it's anything that impacts on someone's life as from a whole level. So it impacts on their development. So their brain development impacts on their learning. It impacts on not just their neurological development, but also their areas of functioning, like their social life, their work. So it's something that is you know, it is something that is very complex trauma, I find, to work with, especially when we have clients with trauma. So that's a very broad definition. You've probably got a perfect definition. <laughs> I, would, I actually don't think there is a perfect definition for trauma because it is so broad. I think trauma can be defined as something that is a when a person perceives an event to be threatening um, or extremely frightening and they have an emotional and physical response to that and then that that association with those negative emotions is what we call trauma so childhood trauma has a has multiple domains or areas that it affects and that's why I don't think there is just one clear-cut definition for trauma but if we think about it simplistically it's when a person perceives an event or a set of circumstances to be extremely frightening or terrifying. So tell me about the different types of trauma. So the type of trauma that we're going to stick to today is emotional neglect but there there is also uh, sexual abuse, physical abuse. Um, you know, we can have different types of emotional abuse, whether, like I said, that's neglect or abandonment or um, verbal abuse. And what is important to mention in this podcast is that although all those different types kinds of abuse do lead to trauma, what we will be focusing on today is the emotional neglect and how that can create trauma when we experience neglect from our primary caregivers and emotional neglect it's actually quite common isn't it emotional neglect is extremely common I know when we both work with children it is something that we see consistently and it's something that maybe others don't see consistently especially caregivers Um, they might be going through their own stresses and trauma and they might not see the impact that they're having on their child Mm. I think emotional 
abuse or emotional neglect it's not overt it's not like physical abuse or sexual Mm. abuse where you know it's not easy to hide and it's very obvious when you are the victim of physical abuse um, because we can very easily say well ow this hurts Mm. me like I'm covered in bruises whereas emotional abuse and neglect can go on for a prolonged period of time and we might not even be aware that we are experiencing emotional abuse so it can be really really subtle things like criticism judgment um, having really high unrealistic expectations on a child and maybe not showing them love when they don't achieve or perform to your expectations that's emotional neglect that's emotional abuse and I think it's really hard for a child to kind of understand that because as a child especially if you were someone who has experienced this this type of abuse as well you didn't know any different not until you got a little bit older that you'd realize that maybe something was wrong so maybe when you're a child that and, and I know when we work with clients who maybe are under the age of 12 they don't know any different they don't know that this stuff is not normal or it's neglect or any of those things because that's the only caregiver that they have. Mm. So childhood emotional neglect is when you experience neglect from your primary caregivers. It sounds pretty obvious. So typically your biological parents, although it can differ um, in some circumstances, and it's when these caregivers are not tentative to your needs. They don't nurture you. They may not provide you affection. They may not speak to you or acknowledge you. They might be harsh or critical. They might hold Um, extremely unrealistic expectations like I said and not show you love or warmth when you don't perform to those expectations so we can see there are a lot of different ways one might experience childhood emotional neglect and it's really powerful when you're a child and you're developing your understanding of the world and your childhood experiences and that shapes your perceptions about what is safe and what you can trust when Our earliest experience of love is our parents Mm. and they are neglectful, critical, cold and dismissive. This makes sense for us to predict that our world is going to be neglectful and unsafe. It shapes the way we start living and experiencing the world. For example, maybe you were taught that it's not okay to cry or express your feelings. Maybe you're a child um, and when you cried or got upset, your parents screamed at you for crying and told you to shut up. That teaches you to withdraw and disconnect from your emotions because it's not safe to express them. When our parents aren't there for us emotionally, it can cause us to believe that our thoughts, feelings and desires don't matter, which can make it really difficult to trust our own emotions and how we feel as adults. So childhood emotional neglect, like I said, can go unnoticed, but it is by no means any less of an abuse. And what I mean by that is I think, you know, when we hear sexual assault, when we hear physical assault, it does sound, you know, really damaging and it is. But and then I think when we look at the emotional side, maybe a lot of people have this misconception that it isn't as damaging. But I can't stress enough that there are real structural and functional impacts of mm. of emotional neglect. Absolutely. Emotional neglect can really manifest in so many ways as well. I mean, in children especially and, and even in adulthood as well. But I think typically in children, a way that trauma can manifest is real disruptions to their behaviour. So we might see from the other end of it, 
children who might be misdiagnosed with ADHD or they might be really withdrawn. Mm. They might be, for example, engaging in self-harming. So they really have those maladaptive coping strategies because they're trying to numb the pain or almost cope with what's going on in their life or almost compartmentalize the pain and the trauma that they're going through and using their behavior as a way as a buffer Mm. to either distract themselves. So children don't have the skills and strategies and the cognitive development to know how to deal with trauma. So what they do, it will manifest in another way. So it can be real withdrawal. It can be lashing out. It can be real anger. It can be real um, and I've seen a, a client certainly who experienced trauma and in at the in year three, she'd suddenly stop talking. So she'd become a selective mute. And it's actually quite common if this if trauma isn't dealt with in the early years, if it's not intervened early, a really common thing that can happen is dissociation. Yeah, that's exactly right. So when we experience trauma from, from a young age, and if that is repetitive trauma or if it was a significant event that has caused complex trauma we can dissociate as a maladaptive coping mechanism from feelings that make us overwhelmed so when we have too much going on when the memories become too painful when our emotions are too intense and we cannot cope with them we dissociate so we detach from our emotions and we become disconnected from feeling and there are a lot of maladaptive behaviors that we see Mm. working with children that can be misdiagnosed with oppositional defiance Mm. disorder or ADHD autism even autism autism's always always (laughs) misdiagnosed yeah definitely so Like I said, trauma work is both a science and an art. To get down and nerdy with some neuroscience, neurobiological systems are impacted from childhood trauma. So exposure to interpersonal trauma in childhood can impact executive function, emotional regulation, and is caused by structural and functional alterations within the hippocampus, prefrontal cortex, and amygdala resulted from chronic or repeated activation of our stress response during sensitive periods of development and what I mean by that is there are times of childhood development that are particularly crucial to get that love nurture and security from our parents and that is definitely within the first 1000 days so the first three years of life while our brain is still developing and in particular our right hemisphere of the brain where all our emotional function takes place our fight or flight response is in our right hemisphere of the brain so it is absolutely paramount that in the first 1000 days a a child or an infant gets that love nurture and secure base Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about attachment style but what happens is when we do have that repeated activation of our stress response during those sensitive time periods exposure um, to childhood trauma can impact brain development over time leading to changes in the structure and function of multiple stress sensitive areas which can profoundly alter our neurobiological development So our thinking brain switched off and we're living in that fight or flight mechanism of our brain. And that results in a wide ranging impairment in arousal, cognitive, emotional and social functioning. So that is when we see that emotional dysregulation in children and with adults and people with adverse childhood experience do experience higher levels of 
you know, incidents with insecure attachments mm. and, and there are internal working models and there are patterns of relating to others. So when we can't regulate our emotions, that really hinders our relationships with others. When we've learned that associations with other people aren't safe and we're in our fight or flight mode because of, you know, things that have happened in the past that have created this association with stress or insecurity or not safe danger that is when we really see those internal working models and attachment form into that kind of maladaptive insecure attachment and if you're constantly in fight or flight if that stress response is activated of course it's incredibly difficult to emotionally regulate to concentrate to Mm. rationalize to have insight because your brain is literally switching off the thinking and it's saying no 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 no. we're not rationalizing at the moment we are getting ready to fight our threat or to run away Mm. and of course if you're constantly in this firstly it's exhausting to be constantly in fight or flight mode especially for a child and secondly of course it's It's going to have impacts on your life. It's going to have impact on your relationships. It's going Mm. to have impact on not just them, but your work. It's Mm. going to have impact on how you socialize and how you relate to your friends and how you do relate to your parents as well. And and I guess everything that comes with adult life. I mean, if you're in a constant stress response, as I know, you know, people with anxiety are constantly in a stress response. It's really hard to function, Mm. especially when it's since childhood. And I think that's where those maladaptive coping mechanisms come from because you learn to cope with it. Definitely. And if we're talking from an emotional Mm. perspective, if you are in that survival fight or flight part of the brain, you can't tend to your emotional functioning at the same time because it's a storm. There's so much going on in your brain to regulate Mm. that I think that's why a lot of people who have experienced childhood trauma or are going through really stressful situations or events struggle to express their emotions Mm. and that's why when we see um, adults who have experienced emotional childhood neglect tend to have real difficulty identifying the difference between positive and negative emotions because they were in that survival Mm. mechanism they weren't developing an emotional awareness they weren't developing that emotional intelligence because there were bigger fish to fry. Mm. They were surviving. They were surviving, definitely. Yeah. yeah, and I think surviving our brain, anyone that's listened to our episodes or knows, I guess, anything about neurology is that your brain will always put your survival first mm. and then it will filter down sequentially about what's important. So if you're feeling safe, if you do have that secure attachment, then you are more likely to be able to function appropriately. But if you don't have the secure attachment and you're constantly in that fight or flight then that really really hinders as Amy was saying your ability to regulate and to have any emotional capacity to think about anyone else Mm. but yourself because I think when you're constantly in fight or flight you're constantly worried about your own safety and so to be able to be in a relationship with someone else is it's quite difficult Definitely, definitely. And understanding attachment is so important for, I think, everyone, but especially for those trying to heal from childhood trauma. Because like I said, attachment styles are our internal working models. I like to think of them as our little internal maps, um, as patterns of relating to others and how we perceive the world. So a secure base or a secure attachment lets us know that we can go out and explore the world knowing that we have that safe base to come back to. We've got a safe foundation that is like, yep, we've got your back, go out, explore the world, we got you. 
When we develop an insecure attachment or an anxious attachment, it can lead to struggling to manage our emotions. Like we just said, feeling any emotions can feel unsafe. It might feel overwhelming. It can make it difficult to express empathy for others if we don't feel secure expressing our own emotions. How are we going to feel comfortable you know, being in someone else's emotional turmoil. And we can tend to avoid others' emotions through our own feelings of discomfort. Mm. So our attachment style can affect adult relationships, definitely. And we'll speak a little bit more about that later. But I wanted to kind of talk about how each attachment style impacts, you know, our, our sense of relating and perceiving the world. So Often children see their mum, and I'm just speaking really generally here. I know there are lots of different variations to family dynamics, but often it is our biological mother who children see as their safety blanket. They see their mum as a person to, to check, is this safe? If I do this, will I be okay? Can I trust you to keep me safe if I you know, experience this? So... Parental responses make a difference and they influence a child's pattern of relating to the world because if we know that if our primary caregiver says that this is safe and we're free to explore and we come back to that secure base, we know we can go out and do it again. We know we can explore other things and it creates a positive association. If we don't have our attachment needs met, we will try and find them in other ways or if they're not met, we may tend to shut down. Or if we go and experience something and we don't have that secure base, we learn that it's not safe, we can't trust it, or it's dangerous. So when you say when our needs aren't met, can you give a few examples of what caregivers could do to not meet a child's emotional needs? Yeah, definitely. So we've got physical needs, psychological needs, social needs, emotional needs. Um, And that that might look like, uh, for example, if physical needs aren't met, um, affection touch not getting cuddles um emotional needs uh, like I discussed earlier um social needs maybe you're kept in isolation and you haven't been able to develop um that safety around others so there are lots and lots of different needs um even just basic basic Mm. needs like food um if you're hungry shelter yeah like um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs just Mm. I think the I think the basic basic needs is safety Mm. so if you don't have a safe haven to come back to if that's that's a need that's not Mm. being met I had a really interesting client that you'd probably find super interesting Mm -hmm. she was neglected as a child and she was never fed and so she actually developed peaker behaviors do you know what peaker behaviors are Pika is when you start to eat inedible things. So when you she like hair? yeah she yeah. would anything she would eat anything because she was she didn't have the skills to know what was appropriate to eat what was inappropriate. So as a child she would try and eat everything because she wasn't getting fed, and still later on in life she expresses these Pika behaviors where she'll drink anything she can get her hands mm. on and eat anything she can get her hands on because she doesn't have the mm. – she's unfortunately she has a cognitive um, delay so she doesn't even now as an adult – she doesn't have the, the markers and the capacity to know, the signifiers to know what's appropriate food. So mm. unfortunately due to that neglect she had as a child, it's really manifested in her life and it still 
is impacting her yeah. and it's quite a dangerous behavior to have as well so it's really interesting and that and the way that trauma manifests is so different for everyone mm. someone could experience exactly the same trauma and have a totally different manifestation so i thought that was super interesting that is super interesting mm. and it does just go to show that how how powerful yeah trauma can be and that if a child's needs aren't met they will definitely learn maladaptive ways to cope Mm. to make sure their need is met in another way Mm. and it it might not be a healthy one but in at that time with the resources that the child has that's a way that they found to you know self-soothe yeah yeah definitely so there are there are four styles of attachment um so I won't go into all the types of attachment stars just because we'd be here for a really long time because <laughs> I can talk <laughs> Look at that nervous laugh <laughs> I'd love to be here for a long time with you sitting oh. in the dark in your living room <laughs> I know I should have turned the light on before the sun went down <laughs> it's gonna get real um what's the word ambience mood it is lighting. a Friday night and we're sitting in the dark talking, yeah, talking to our microphones about our childhood trauma um but no if you would like to hear more about each individual attachment style we have a podcast I think it was the first one we did called um mm, attachment second? second maybe second we've done so many i know we'll i can't keep lost, up yeah. <laughs> so amy tell me how someone who's who has experienced childhood trauma and a lot of us have how would that display in in adult life in current life can you tell everyone I guess what kind of things because people might be listening and not realize that they maybe had childhood trauma or not realize that it is impacting on their current life so can you kind of give us an idea of how it can impact and how it can present in in adult life definitely so there are so many different presentations um, of how trauma can impact our life as an adult. Um, we might develop narcissism traits. So that's a really common one that people love to talk about. Uh, people pleasing, low self-esteem, easily upset or concerned by what other people think is a big one. Mm. Um, you might struggle to identify how you feel and you might feel like emotions are too overwhelming to touch. So you might often just dismiss emotions, um, detach from emotions because, you know, you've learned that any kind of emotions aren't safe. As an adult who was emotionally neglected, this might look like feeling numb feeling very sensitive to rejection. You might find yourself avoiding rejection by isolating yourself from others, not just romantic partners, but any kind of social gatherings. You might experience, like I said, very low self-worth and self-esteem. You may find yourself kind of feeling, and this sounds very like uh, deep, but it does. You might find yourself feeling really empty Mm. and hollow um, because it's like something's missing from your life. And that's a really common feeling for people who have experienced emotional neglect. You might also be a perfectionist and feel a need to that nothing is ever good enough because you've never experienced what it feels like to have that emotional support. And the unconditional love yeah. that no matter how many mistakes you make. And that's really common in children who pres- whose parents were never happy with their results mm. or they were never good enough. Or, you know, it's, it's your classic example of, oh, if they got 85%, a parent might say, where's the other 15%? Or I came second, why didn't you come first? So that perfectionism tendency is a real, real common in those childhoods where they were never they felt like they were never good enough Mm, definitely um as an adult you might suffer from ptsd depression or anxiety 
You might struggle to have healthy relationships with others. The brain is easily dysregulated, like I said, and critical moments that provoke too much stress or there might be there might not be a lot of clarity around conflicting ideas. So if you've experienced or any kind of uh, abuse that turns into trauma, you don't have clear ideas on what love, values, uh, courtship, um, how to care for yourself, mm. that that is going to be, I guess, skewed from what you experienced. And if you are in a relationship with someone who, you know, hadn't experienced any adverse childhood events, your views or your ideals are going to look a lot different to theirs. Mm. And, And that can be a real conflict in adult relationships. Also, different attachment styles Mm. in adult relationships. So whether you have an avoidant attachment style and you withdraw and go away from problems or, you know, if you have an um, anxious ambivalent attachment style where you might feel really clingy one minute and really resentful the next, Mm. that's all going to impact you as an adult and how Mm. you function in the world. And as a relationship, you or even with a friendship, if you had experienced, you know, the attachment styles that aren't secure so you've got the anxious attachment you've got the ambivalent attachment if you've experienced those it it is actually quite common I think Ames you touched on it before about if you meet someone who's quite similar to that caregiver because they it's quite familiar behavior you might be more likely to want to be their partner or you might want to get into a relationship with them because you see their behavior as familiar and it's almost like it feels like home. There is a higher statistical probability of people that have experienced emotional abuse Mm -hmm. to end up in emotionally abusive relationships and I think that does go back to attachment style is that we learn how our perception of the world so we don't feel like we're worthy or we Mm -hmm. don't know what real love is or all we've learnt is maybe that no one could ever love us because our biological parents who were programmed to love us didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think people that have experienced especially abandonment or emotional neglect, again, have a very different perspective of what relationships or relating to people mm-hmm. look like. So... I definitely know for the um, avoidant and anxious ambivalent that although that they are drawn to each other, so an anxious attachment style person is drawn to an avoidant attachment style Mm. person because that evokes their come here, go away Mm. that they've learnt. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they feel loved. Right. But it's it's been modelled to them before and it's familiar. So maybe I'm just trying to think in terms of I get that it's the go away, come here. That's what they're used to, right? Mm. So without kind of insight or knowledge into your own attachment style, I guess subconsciously or unconsciously, people yeah, might see, you know. people might seek yeah. out that relationship because it's what feels familiar yeah. to them. Yeah. yeah, it's similar to parents. Mm. So parents that have experienced will just stick with emotional neglect. They will most probably even though they've experienced it and they they know all the pain they will more likely be emotionally Mm. neglectful parents because they haven't healed their own emotional wounds okay my lovely amy 
can you tell us a little bit about some ways that you think is helpful for someone who might be listening or someone who knows someone who has experienced childhood trauma and they're wanting to know some ways to cope and to heal. So please take it away. Why, thank you. <laughs> um, so, you know, you're all here. You want to heal. Um It's complex. Healing from trauma is not easy and it is not quick. There is no quick fix to healing from trauma. And the reason why that is, is because when we address trauma, it often gets worse before it gets better. But in saying that, we can definitely heal from childhood trauma. Mm. I think, like I was just saying off mic to Kat, one of the most important things we can do for ourselves when we're trying to heal from childhood trauma is to understand what caused our trauma, is to understand our attachment style and and what's caused those reactions, what's caused us to function the way we do because I feel like we get a lot of relief from understanding that, hey, I function like this and I have a hard time expressing myself because my brain was trying to protect me as a child. I think that's so crucial to understand. I think what's also really important to understand is to know that your reaction to what's happened is normal and it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with you. It's just you were trying to cope the best that you knew how at the time with the skills and the support that you had. I think that's really crucial to understand because a lot of clients who do come to me with trauma, and this probably happens with you, is they think that something's wrong with them or they think that that they've done something wrong, but mm. please know that your what you've been through, what how you're behaving current day, and if you have issues in your life, it's probably a manifestation of your trauma. It's completely normal. Um, so just a little little reminder. Mm, definitely. So a lot of the healing comes from yourself and your inner child. And I know that sounds a little bit uh, abstract, but it's true. We need to go back to those unresolved conflicts and start healing from our inner child. So understanding your attachment style will be a big part of that. And I think when it comes to overcoming childhood neglect, caring for yourself is really important. So like I've said a million times, I'll try not to repeat myself, but our parents showed us what love meant. Mm. And you might not have learnt how to care for yourself because it wasn't modelled to you. But it's never too late to care for yourself. You may tend to be extremely self-critical or extremely judging of yourself. So practicing things like self-compassion and giving yourself time and space to learn how to be warm and nurturing to yourself is going to be really important. Then I would suggest identifying feelings. So often people who have experienced emotional neglect find it really, really difficult to touch feelings, um, express their emotions. And we can spend a lot of time protecting ourselves from the pain that emotions may have caused us in the past. So what's really important and um, I guess what I would get a lot of clients to do is practice expressing both positive and negative emotions even if you just start with something really 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 simple like I feel tired Mm. just acknowledging how you feel and sitting with that feeling is really important because what that does is it creates an attunement with yourself Um, a trauma-informed therapist would be a great option to explore this 
So by understanding your needs and how you feel, you're better able to practice daily habits um, that will kind of all work towards healing the feelings that have been ignored for so long. And, you know, it can kind of become more of a normal thing to express how you feel. Mm, Absolutely. Um, Another thing that's really helpful for trauma is your it's your meditation it's your relaxation it's your mindfulness Mm. I think sometimes with trauma and you 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 do present in current day often with anxiety or depression I don't need to mean to pathologize it but often that's that's the case and especially with those two things it's really important to feel grounded and to slow your body down and to relax your body because if it's so used to being in that fight or flight you might not notice how tense you are all the time and how flighty you are and how hyper vigilant you are all the time and so when you start to learn to kind of reprogram your brain that it's okay to calm down and that it's safe to relax I think that has amazing benefits for the client just because it it really it's really grounding and and there's something with mindfulness and meditation relaxation that anyone who hasn't tried it it can sound incredibly abstract and it can sound incredibly what's what I'm looking for like a little bit hippie but for anyone who does experience trauma or any anxiety disorder, it is so incredibly helpful. I've seen some amazing benefits from your, yeah, and even heart art therapy and music mm. therapy. That's really helpful as well. So exploring those things, the therapist could be really, really beneficial for your somatic responses as well. Definitely. And they're all things that I'd recommend as well. And mindfulness and meditation can also be great for being aware of your emotions and your needs. Another thing that I would suggest is writing it out. Mm. So sometimes talking isn't the most helpful and this sounds really counterintuitive, but bear with me. A lot of people talking about their traumatic memories, um, it can make their symptoms of anxiety worse. Mm. So talking is no doubt crucial for emotional healing and putting our emotions into words is a very important part of processing trauma. But as we know, based on brain scans, um, traumatic memories can cause impairments to Mm. the frontal lobes of our brains. And that is actually where speech is. So the right hemisphere of the brain, like I said, it's our fight or flight response. And that's all going, going crazy. So speaking and writing two different parts of the brain, which explains why sometimes talking can be overwhelming. Mm. And when we write it out, that can give us a really big sense of relief because, again, it's not not feeding into that fight or flight response part of the brain. So sometimes um, it can be really helpful to just write out a story of something that happened to you or write down your fears or your resentments. And it can be really powerful for restoring emotional calm and clarity and it can assist with brain regulation as well. So... A person who's regulated is in a much better position to, you know, undergo or engage in art therapy or meditation because when we are in that fight or flight response, it's super, super tricky to engage in anything else. So sometimes just taking the time as a first step to even if it's not your whole story, if that's too much to touch, um, you know, go at your own pace, go with what you feel comfortable with. But even if it's just writing down, you know, three things that you maybe hold resentment still Mm. or three things that you're scared of, or even just writing down a memory that you have, if you can't verbally articulate it, um, writing about it can be really helpful. Mm. So I guess some, um, some therapies that 
are, are really helpful with um, trauma and coping with trauma and dealing with trauma. Uh, um, there is narrative therapy, which is mm. really helpful. What that does storytelling. It also helps to depersonalize the trauma um, and to tell a story in a way that's not directly related to the client. I think when we are in that have that constant stress response we we do tend to maybe get defensive sometimes so to hear it from a a different perspective with through storytelling can be a really beautiful way to tell your story without the pressure and without the directness of someone asking you about your story um so i think that can be a really really helpful narrative therapy as well um if you are working with a with a therapist you can ask them about narrative therapy or you know you can even google it storytelling is really really it's really um a really beautiful way to express trauma without it being so confronting. Definitely. And I think accepting help and support is really helpful as well. And it can be difficult if you've learned from a young age that you're not worthy of support or, you know, that your problems are too, are too much or that no one could possibly help you if your parents couldn't. Um, and you can begin by just chatting about your day to someone, whether it's a therapist, whether it's a friend. You know, I think really growing your support network is so crucial um, because connection is key when we're healing from trauma. Mm. The thing that is going to really, really help you heal is establishing a strong sense of connection, whether that be to, you know, a therapeutic connection or whether it be mm. um you know, a social connection or a romantic connection that is going to be a real strength for you in healing. And a stable connection. Mm. That's really Mm. important as well. Definitely. So letting someone help you is really important. And this also assists in dispelling the, the old beliefs that you might have about no one else ever caring for you or no one um, being able to help you Mm. because I think challenging beliefs is another really important part of the healing process. Holding on to beliefs that might have been once true that you learnt as a child and kind of learning to dissect that those beliefs may not be true for you as an adult is really important as well. And that's also going back to your automatic negative thoughts. Mm. I think, you know, I know we touched on this in the last episode, but the way that your parents spoke to you can become your self-talk as an adult. So really going back and challenging the self-thought, the automatic negative thoughts or the thoughts you have about yourself, because often when we do unpack it and we do start to really question the validity and the truthfulness behind it, a lot of the self-talk that you do have, it's absolute, It's actually not true. So you might think, oh, I'm really unlovable or I'm not good enough for that person. But when you go back and, and actually sit with that and challenge it, it actually nine times out of ten turns out to actually not be true at all. But because we've been so used to telling ourselves that, it, it is really hard to undo that and to think new thoughts. So that's a really helpful thing to start to acknowledge your own self-thoughts about yourself and, and where they came from as well. Yeah, and definitely part of acknowledging some of those thoughts um, – you know, you might like to engage in some self-soothing practices. Mm. So where did those thoughts come from? They came from needs not being met. What are the needs that you may have wished were met? And can you meet them today? So whether that was, you know, messages like you're unworthy of love or you don't matter um, or whether you missed out on physical needs. So things like taking a bath and really taking the time to care for yourself Mm. and soothe the needs from your inner child, like I said, sounds a little bit abstract, but it's true. Um, Mm. How we heal from trauma is going back to our unresolved conflicts and where those messages, you know, first started and kind of kind of trying to Mm -hmm. retrain ourselves to see the world in a different way. 
sometimes with trauma as well, you got to go back before you can go forward. You definitely do. <laughs> so thank you for those lovely, amazing strategies, well, thank Amy. Thank you. Oh. <laughs> Anytime. So we have some listener questions for people who've written in regarding all things trauma. So the first one is, how do I stop using trauma as an excuse every time things go wrong? Well, I think we kind of just touched on that. Mm. I think understanding where your trauma comes from, understanding that it's not necessarily an excuse, but you have learnt a way of functioning mm. because certain needs weren't met or because you experienced an event or, you know, repeated events that have made you function the way you do today. So I think, you know, maybe it's, it sounds like that's not being very gentle and mm. sensitive with yourself where you say, how can we not use it as an excuse? I would say definitely practicing some self-compassion mm. and knowing that while it while it's not an excuse, there are definitely reasons and causes as to why, you know, maybe you have some behaviors that you would like to change. And I think maybe going back um, to where they came from is a really good good place to start if you would like to change some of those behaviors Mm. and also acknowledging and exploring when you say when things go wrong I mean are you thinking that it's your fault or are you thinking it's someone else's fault I mean if you're using the excuse thing oh well I couldn't do x y and z because of my trauma I mean as Amy was saying that trauma does really impact on your life and it could really be your trauma manifesting but if you I guess have the insight to know what the difference between trauma and I guess justifying your behaviors because of your trauma I think that it sounds like you do need to have some exploration with somebody who can really delve into how you are using it as an excuse and whether it is an excuse or whether that's just you coping and your trauma has manifested in in maladaptive coping mechanisms I mean we don't know your whole story and it's always hard with these questions because they're always just one line so we probably need to know more to understand what's going on, but I really think it sounds like support from a therapist could be really, really helpful with a question like this because it can impact on your life. Um, but it sounds like you're extremely insightful and, and it sounds like you do want to change a behavior. So this is a good time to go and seek that help from, from a therapist. Mm, definitely. All righty, question number two. How to stop resenting your parents for your trauma? Oh, this is a tricky one. I think... It is really important to acknowledge that your parents, you can't force your parents to change. Um, you can ask them, you can let them know how you're feeling, you can let them know how their behaviors have impacted you. But unfortunately, we can't, we don't have that control over other people. Um, and I think it's not an excuse if they keep treating you like this. But I think at the same time, you also have the choice to not have them in your life as well. Even though that's really hard, if if people are toxic, even though they're your caregivers and your parents, if they still make you feel triggered or if they still make you feel insecure, you have the right to not have them in your life. And I think this comes back to a lot of our healing needs to be done on our end. So it's important to know that a lot of the time our parents have their own trauma and needs that weren't met when they were children, which has impacted on their internal map Mm. and how they have related to their own children. So I would suggest rather than working on the relationship directly with um, your parents, I would work on the relationship with yourself because 
that's where real resolution comes from. I think resentment can really clutter your mind and it can actually be a trigger that something isn't resolved and there's something, you know, still going on for you. Um, So possibly seeking a trauma-informed therapist to support exploring that I think would be a really good idea. But if, if you did want something, I guess, practical to help with managing that resentment, like I said, I think writing down what did you need from your parents at that time where you kind of developed that resentment and what might you need from them now? Can you practice meeting those needs by yourself? Like could you, like I always say, practice nurturing your inner child and meeting those needs for yourself? Um, and I guess blame suggests, like I said, or resentment suggests that the issue in is unresolved and we might need to go back and identify what's, what's causing that resentment. Mm, yeah, and as Amy was saying, your parents have probably been through trauma or your caregivers have probably been through trauma as well. And if that's the case, then you can't force, if you are wanting to heal, that's fantastic, but you can't force others to heal as well because sometimes trauma can be too much for people to deal with. They've probably had their own struggles as well. And I think that looking at it from a very empathetic light, even if your parents have, you know, done things or behaved in ways or said things that had caused some trauma for you, it's really also good to take a step back and see that what was going on in their life and that they were probably doing the best that they could with what they had available. Um, and yeah, I think you can't force healing process onto somebody else, but as Amy's saying, work through it on your own. Or like not so much on your own, but th- with, yeah. yeah, it needs to come from your end yeah. um, because more than likely, like Kat's saying, the way we're, the way we are, I guess, treated as children doesn't actually have anything to do with us. Mm. It's not our fault. Mm. Um, So, yeah, I think it's just about what you can control is what's on your end and go from there. And often if your parents were neglecting you or had traumatised you, there's a good chance that they were traumatised by their parents as well. It's quite common for that pattern to be evident with the parent-child relationship. So, yeah, having that real empathetic view can help with that resentment as well but we strongly suggest that you do reach out for a therapist because this is something that is extremely I mean if you do have complex trauma um, there is also PTSD which you didn't touch on but that's another type of trauma it is really it's really difficult to work through on your own I mean you can but I think it's really important to initiate the support of a therapist during this time I would strongly recommend a trauma-informed therapist Mm. um, so a psychotherapist or a psychologist or counsellor that practice under that practices under a trauma informed lens mm. um, would yeah would be the way to go yeah yeah all right guys that is all the time we have for today thank you for our darling Hutto for sprinkling your magic and wisdom into the trauma episode sprinkled just as much mad- <laughs> oh, magic God, we no. shine together <laughs> all right we will catch you next time guys bye. bye. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. If you want to see more, please feel free to follow us on Instagram at The Psychology Sisters. To make sure that you never miss another episode, please hit the subscribe button in the podcast app. If you know someone who might enjoy this episode, we would love you to share this with them. Please note the content shared in this episode is purely educational and does not replace personalized advice from a mental health professional. See you next week for more spicy science and sexy self-help.